Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Steve Brooks, uh, Kurt Borden, uh, two of the pastors here at First Methodist Midland. want to welcome you, whether you're here in the room or you are joining us online tonight. We are glad that you are here as we begin a brand new study. Um, we have moved on from the book of Ezekiel, and we are going to a much less book in length, but not less book in impact, the book of Colossians in uh, the New Testament, and we are really excited about that. Um, there is a passage uh, in Colossians at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That sounds a lot, like a lot of flowery theological talk to me. But I want us, as we uh, proceed through, start the study tonight, to keep that phrase in mind. What could it possibly mean for us to enter into a life and to stay in a life that is hidden with Christ in God? And I think that is, as Paul navigates through the different things in the book, uh, I think that is one of the big things he's inviting us to uh, embrace and to live into. One of the things that I always like to remind us of when we start a new study is that uh, this is going to be short. We were in the book of Ezekiel for over 52 weeks, right? So this is going to be 10 weeks. How's that, right? <laughs> be 10 weeks. And uh, so we're a wise start. man there. <laughs> anyway, we're aspiring to greater things, Tom. Uh, and, I, and I say this, and, and it's absolutely true. Uh, Pastor Kurt and I do speak in hyperbole a lot, um, but sorry, uh, rabbis true. did that, so Kurt's going to do that too, right? Yeah. Uh, but we don't. We, I'm not talking in hyperbole here. Uh, you will know the Book of Colossians better than 99% of the people, 99.9% of the people in the world after this Bible study for over these next ten weeks. But really, that doesn't mean a hill, hill of beans. Because what we hope that we accomplish when we open God's Word together is that our lives will actually change, will be transformed as we allow God to speak to us uh, through His Word gathered here in community. And so that's what we are going to promise, uh, that you will know it really well, really well, but it's really up to you to allow the Lord to transform you through that. So as we begin our time in prayer tonight, I want to uh, invite you to turn to Psalm 32. It's what we do uh, normally uh, during our studies is we open them with reading a psalm. And um, Psalm 32, as we uh, go through it, as we go through the book of Colossians, there's a lot of similar themes. And this hidden in Christ theme is one of them. And so I thought that would be a good place for us to start tonight as we pray together. So let's bow our heads. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
for day and night. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in the letter of Colossians. Can everybody find it? It's towards the end of the New Testament. Paul's works are recorded for us in order of their length. So from longest to the shortest. So this is towards the shorter side. We're jumping about 600 years from the time of Ezekiel to the first century, about 50 AD. And there's nothing in the church, at least, that's massively wrong. There's no genocides. There's no losing your country. Temples aren't being burned down. Uh, There's some problems coming. But Paul is going to try to head them off before they get really bad. So all things considered, this is a cakewalk. This is a beautiful walk in the summer day through a nice field compared to the Himalayas we just climbed. So you deserve a break. Uh, like Steve said, it's, it's a short work, but it's a beautiful work. It gets us into the insight of Paul's understanding of Christ that is just absolutely phenomenal. And we, we don't want to miss that. We do need to ground ourselves that we're in a very different place than we have been in anywhere else in Scripture. The first thing to understand is that these are letters. The Bible should always be seen sort of as a library. We call it the book because we bind it in one source. But it really is different books, different writings, and sometimes letters. And so we we pick up a papyrus letter here that was cherished and passed on from church to church. But please understand that when Paul is writing these, he probably doesn't really think they're going to be included in Scripture. Now that kind of blows our mind because, well, Paul is phenomenal. Uh, He's inspired, and he's an egotistical maniac, (laughs) hyperbole. Um, But (laughs) he, he, he doesn't... Does he lack for self-confidence? No, he really doesn't. He's, he's kind of an in-your-face kind of guy. But I think even he would admit, eh, this is probably not, not Scripture. But God certainly uses it in a way that's consistent with Scripture. And so there's no doubt that it becomes Scripture. And I, I throw that introduction just to say, you never know. The words that you say, what you say in the name of God, 
what you say in a conversation or email or a text, it very well could become a living words that change somebody's life. Yeah. I think it would shock Paul a little bit, and it probably should keep us on our toes. What we say is the same thing that God used to create the world, that Jesus used to lift people from sin they thought they could never escape from. So we have the same power that he does, and we should take that with uh, some reverence, some appreciation. Letters, we need to talk just for a little bit. In the ancient world, are super, super expensive. Paper comes from papyrus in Egypt. And I'll bring some for us to play with. It was their uh, most, in the ancient world, most preferred way of writing. But it's very uh, perishable. It's not quite like our paper today. If you just leave it alone, it's, it's gonna, gonna fall apart. So some of the most precious things that they would write on papyrus, they'd have to continually rewrite them to keep them. And so there's part of this discipline of copying older texts. Writing a letter to be shipped somewhere is very expensive. There's no Roman mail source. Uh, there's no post office. If you want to send a letter, the military has means to do it, and very wealthy Romans do, but the average person either has to take it themselves or try to hire somebody to do it, a ship captain or a merchant or something like that. And they're notorious from the sources that we read for being unreliable. Stuff just doesn't get delivered. And so the early church gets in this habit of sending its own in order to deliver these letters. So as we look at the surviving papyrus today, the average length of a letter is about 100 words, 90 to 100 words. Now you all are good Christians in here. Does Paul's letters usually run about 90 to 100 words? My gosh, he closes letters longer than 190 words, right? He, uh, he writes these super long, I mean, Romans, the guy was like, what? How much do you? So this is a massive expense that's incurred. And I think it reflects Paul's passion for what he's talking about. He's not going to give you a flippant answer. He's not going to give you just, yeah, you know, I'm good. I hope you're good. I'll pray for you. See you later. He really tries to impart what he understands, his relationship with God, his passion for Christ in these letters. And we'll, we'll certainly see that here. So to receive one of these is a huge, huge deal. Now, who do you suppose got letters from Paul? It wasn't all the churches. Now, he has relationships with certain churches, but there's more churches than that. There's other people that are winning church people to Christ. But who do you think he writes to? What would be your guess? Just from the names that we know. He wrote to Rome. Is Rome a big town? Yeah, it's the biggest city in the world. Um, Ephesus, would you guess? Big town, small town? It's a pretty big town. Top top three we were trying to figure out today. Uh, maybe fourth. Uh, but Colossae is not. It is sort of Midland when there's a bust. Now, normally Midland is the center of culture and education in Texas, right? Amen. Amen, baby. But we have these periodic downturns that just slow us down, right? Well, we've got to reset our map here. Uh, we're, we're out of sort of the biblical world that we grew up in. We're, we're in some different, different places now. 
with the people of Colossae. Um, they are not what they used to be. They used to be an economic powerhouse in terms of trade. It was wool, uh, black wool that they were specialized in. We're not even sure about the name. It's a, a foreign word that's come into Greek, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But we think they're playing off of the name of their wool. And this was a black, shiny wool that was very much prized by the Romans because they used it to make waterproof tents primarily. Sometimes they'd make covers and other stuff with it. Primarily it was used for the legions and waterproof tents. But as markets change, as roads change, uh, this little town got sidetracked. And so a lot of times we talk about places like Ephesus, and we just we have no comparison. You know, Ephesus was huge. If you can remember, they had a beautiful amphitheater, beautiful uh, acropolis where their temples were. Let me show you some of the great vistas of the archaeological work in Colossae today that you can visit in Turkey. So I think this is our first photo of Colossae. Wow. Isn't that something? Um, now, this is a little later than the period that we're talking about. It's probably Byzantine, but even then it was a dump. Uh, look, look in the background. Does that look a little bit familiar to us? I, it's like, am I home? Uh, this, this looks like... Now, in all of these cities, their pride is what they call the Acropolis. And so this is fashioned after Athens, where they have this huge uh, mountain in the middle of the city, and they build their temples, and this is, this is the best... And so here is a look at uh, the Acropolis of Colossae. That's it. <laughs> it's got some interesting weeds. So even today, this poor little town doesn't get a lot of love. Uh, it hasn't even been formally uh, had an archaeological dig at it. There's some talk about it. In 2019, they were going to, and then COVID. Uh, so the poor place, it's got a long history, but it just didn't have the kind of sparkle that other places did in the region uh, during the first century. And that's sad because it is the home of a group of people that are as old almost as the Jews themselves. So they're very ancient people. And they're neither Jew nor Greek nor Roman. They're kind of a, th a fourth, fifth category that often gets overlooked. And so I tell you all this just to say, God bless Paul. He didn't just write to the big cities. He didn't just write to the places that he had a personal connection to. If he knew of any place that was really trying to follow Christ and get it right, he had a tendency to reach out to them. So again, he doesn't have a personal connection to these people, but he wants to encourage them anyway. And I think this was a huge deal from them, for them to receive a letter of this length, of this investment in money, uh, from an apostle, uh, from someone that had seen the resurrected Christ. So let us try to do some map work here. Before yeah. we head on, just I just want to kind of just pause there for a second and just uh, remind us that we take off our Americocentral glasses, um, that we have the pleasure of reading this letter over the shoulders of the Colossians. Uh, Paul wrote this letter for them uh, for a specific purpose. And when, whenever you read through the letters of the New Testament, really what incites the writers to write them, it really boils down to a couple of things, I think. They are, they are 
except for one writing of the New Testament, entirely pastoral. They are addressing pastoral concerns to help strengthen and encourage, encourage people who are already following Jesus. Remember which book of the Bible, book of the New Testament is not written for that purpose? It's the Gospel of John. Because remember, John ends his book. These are written that you might believe. Like it's, it's written to initiate faith. The rest of them are to hold people in their faith. Now really, I think there's two reasons why people waver. And if you'll look in just down at verse nine, 11 real quick, it says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. So think of the things that happen in our lives that erode away our endurance and our patience and our confidence. I think there are two. Number one, hardship. The thing that... That life comes at us fast. It's hard. Things stack up. COVID, two years, right? War in Ukraine. In the middle of all that, uh, people getting died, family members dying from COVID, getting diagnosed with uh, different th- different sicknesses, uh, losing jobs, having to take a cut in pay all of those things uh, kind of start stacking up on you. Uh, relationship problems uh, with your spouse. Uh, you, you fill in the blank. That hardship, God, uh, you here? What you doing? See me over here? And things don't get easier. It knocks you down, Right? One of the things in the book of Colossae, to the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, um, Paul will say, Jesus is Lord. (laughs) And we who grown up in the church, yeah, of course. It was one of the most subversive things that you could say in the ancient world. Because you're saying something else when you say that. You're saying that Caesar is not. That will create hardship for you. Because when things start to go wrong in Colossae, guess who gets blamed? The people who are not doing the things everyone else is doing. It was a subversive thing to stop worshiping the local gods and goddesses, to say Jesus is Lord, uh, Caesar is not. So there's these outward hardships. There's these hardships that come because of this faith that we believe that God is is completely making the whole world new to bring our world back to this place of the goodness of the garden. And when you're not following in line, hardship could come for other people. Um, That's the first reason. Uh, Hardship and the second reason is difficulty from other people who are opposed to your new way of living and being in the world. How do you maintain your confidence, maintain your trust in God in light of outside pressures and voices 
that want you to get in line with the normal program. That is what Paul, that's why Paul writes, is the trouble isn't there yet, as Pastor Kurtz already said. But by golly, trouble is a coming. So we read in Acts that there was a proclamation of the gospel at Pentecost. There was the delivery of the Holy Spirit, and people gathered from all over the world. And let's be honest, there's a lot of strange names in there, and we think, well, who, who are all these people? We sort of pick up the big names, usually, the Romans, the Greeks, maybe the Egyptians and Syrians, and others like that. But there were a lot of strange groups. And one of the things that we're going to try to show you is that the gospel of Christ is growing at a rate the ancient world had never seen. The ancient world moved very, very slow. It's not like modern times with technology. Uh, people would live and die doing basically the same thing the generation had before. And no one had ever quite seen anything like Christianity that's changing people's relationships. It's changing their national identity. It's changing the way they relate to each other, all because of the person of Christ. And this isn't just happening for Jewish people or even Greek people. It's happening for all people in encounters. And so we're really introduced to a group here that you've probably never heard of before. And in many ways, you have more in common with them than many of the other biblical characters. So let me show you the beginning of a video, at least, of uh, introduction to uh, the natives of uh, Colossae. So I think we have a video for it. Greek legend has it that the people who would become the Phrygians crossed into Anatolia, or Asia Minor as the Greeks called it, from Macedon and Thrace. The Phrygians also appear in the Iliad, where they're the allies of the city of Troy. And then, of course, there's the famous legend of King Midas of Phrygia, whose touch turned everything to gold. Have you heard of him? Oh, and let's not forget Alexander and the Gordian Knot. We'll touch up on all of these in the program. The land that during the Iron Age was known as Phrygia was located in what's today central and northwestern Turkey. To the Greeks, it made a part of the land that they called Asia Minor. Scholars on the subject believe that the people who became the Phrygians migrated into Anatolia just after the late Bronze Age collapse, where after the fall of the Hittite Empire, they created their own state centered around the settlement of Gordian. Can you pause it for a minute? River, today about one so they're going to take you through some hardcore ancient Near Eastern history that is back towards the time of Ezekiel. Uh, I apologize for it. I really just want to give you a sense of it. You don't need to get blow for blow. But you're, you're talking about a group of people that had migrated from what we would today call the Balkans back into what is today Turkey about the time the Israelites were leaving Egypt. There's some variance there in, in terms of language, but it's probably about 1200 B.C. Uh, the Israelites are leaving Egypt about 1400 B.C. The time of David is about 1000 B.C. So they're, they're a very ancient group of people. Um, they are, and they'll talk about this a little bit, but they are Indo-Europeans. Now let that rattle around your brain for a minute. We have followed this group of people obsessively in the West for a long time because they are our ancestors. They are proto-Europeans. One of my, uh, uh, actually, Egyptian professors always had this joke. Do you know what the Indo-European word for water is? Water. 
So it's actually Watar, but so there was these weird kind of similarities that we have. Now, this is not the only group that are Indo-Europeans that show up in Anatolia, but uh, they are one of the pronounced. That they've been there since the time of the Trojan Wars is hugely significant. That they were contemporaries of the Hittites, which will be wiped out, uh, and they survive all of that. A lot of uh, incredible research is being done the last 10 years in DNA work. And we're discovering things about these Indo-Europeans that we never, ever suspected. One of the things they've just published uh, two weeks ago is the origins of white skin. Now, that almost seems like a, a forbidden topic, but we knew for the longest time that there was some relationship between vitamin D absorption and skin color. So if you live along the equator, there's more sun, and so you, you don't need as much vitamin absorption. People in northern climates don't have access to the sun, and so their skin tends to change color so they can adapt to vitamin absorption. The problem with this is Eskimos. Eskimos live in the coldest climates possible, and yet they retain dark skin, dark features. How is that possible? How was it explained? Really, we had no idea. Linguistics, archaeology, nothing could help us. And these DNA studies have actually begun to explain it. It was agriculture from people coming out of this area, these Indo-Europeans that were primarily eating bread and not fish, so they had very low consumption of vitamin D. When they moved to the northern climes, as we're seeing the Indo-Europeans going back and forth, then the skin color began to change as we tried to adapt, not having a natural source of vitamin D. So, I mean, there's so much incredible history that's wrapped up in these people. But the Romans and Greeks thought they were crazy hill people. The only thing that they would really mark them for was their funny hats. Um, I, I'll show it to you in a minute, but there, there's a, a, a Phrygian uh, hat that they wear. Uh, it's a little cap kind of thing. looks like an elf hat. And the Romans just thought it was hilariously funny. So again, I want you to get a sense of these people. They're very ancient. They had kind of their own way of making an ancient world. Uh, they were tough fighters, but they had been marginalized. Their culture was sort of suppressed by the greater mighty Roman, well, first the Greeks and, and then the Romans. And yet when Christianity comes, they embrace it with all they have. So we'll watch some of the video. I know it's a lot of detail here, but just the sort of the raw antiquity of, of these people is, is impressive. 100 kilometers southwest of the Turkish capital of Ankara. Through an analysis of the Phrygian language, scholars have concluded that it's likely that the Phrygians may have indeed come from southwestern Europe. Phrygian is an ancient Indo-European language, but not of the same branch as other Anatolian languages such as Luvian or Hittite. Rather, it's closer to Illyrian or Thracian, ancient languages that were spoken in the Balkans. There are also similarities between Phrygian pottery and those from southeastern Europe from before the 11th century BC. Even after the so-called Bronze Age collapse, archaeology reveals that there was still contact between the Phrygians in Asia Minor and the peoples of southeastern Europe, especially with regard to trade in minerals and other commodities. This connection with Europe may have partly been responsible for Phrygia developing into a cultural entity distinct from the other peoples of Anatolia. Though not all scholars agree, the Phrygians appear in written sources from the time of the reign of the Assyrian king, 
Tiglath-Pileser I, where they're associated with the people known as the Mushki. According to these Assyrian sources, they were part of a massive army consisting of 20,000 men and led by five kings that invaded Assyrian territory in the west. In another inscription, Tiglath-Pileser I claims to have defeated a force of some 12,000 Mushki troops. Gordian, the political and cultural center of Phrygia, is believed to have been named after Gordius, the father of the mythical and historical king Midas. A legend, presented as history by the Roman historian Justin, states that an oracle in the city of Telemusus proclaimed that the next man to enter the city, driving an ox cart, would become the king of Phrygia. You could sort of see so their cap that there. A peasant farmer named Gordius entered the town on an ox cart, and so in accordance with the oracle's declaration, he was made the new king of Phrygia. Out of gratitude, Gordius's son, Midas, dedicated the ox cart to the Phrygian god Sabazios, who the Greeks identified with Zeus. Midas tied the cart to a post with an intricate knot made from cornel bark, which the Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus claims was made of several tight knots that were nearly impossible to untangle. It was said that whoever could do so would go on to rule all of Asia. As many of you may already know, there is a popular story of Midas in Greek mythology. According to this story, Midas captured Selenos, a close companion of the god Dionysus. He later released Selenos, and as a reward, Dionysus granted Midas with one wish. The greedy king immediately made the wish that everything he touched turned to gold. His wish was granted, but soon Midas' joy turned to horror when he discovered that he could neither eat nor drink, or really do anything. Everything he tried to consume turned to gold. In order to rid himself of the golden touch, Midas bathed himself in a magical river, whose sands from that day onward contained copious amounts of gold dust. As a historical figure, most scholars claim that Midas became king of Phrygia in 738 BC. He appears in Assyrian records as King Mita of the Mushki, and in 717 BC, allied with King Pisiri of Carchemish, and encouraged him to revolt against the authority of King Sargon II of Assyria. The revolt was unsuccessful, and soon Sargon sought to punish Mita and Phrygia. However, about 10 years later, in 707 BC, the two kings made peace with each other, and even forged an alliance between their two states. This was probably not due to some newfound love for each other, but perhaps the arrival of a nomadic warrior people known as the Chimerians. Sargon may have also agreed to peace with Phrygia in return for them not lending any support to one of Assyria's great rivals, the Kingdom of Urartu. By around the year 700 BC, the Chimerians are said to have ravaged Phrygia, and the beleaguered Midas rumored to have committed suicide in an effort to save face. Shortly afterward, Gordian was destroyed by the Chimerians. They were eventually defeated by the Lydian king Ayatis, who according to Herodotus, drove the Chimerians out of Asia. What remained of Phrygia became part of Lydia. When Lydia was absorbed into the Achaemenid Persian Empire, Phrygia went along with it, becoming one of the empire's many satrapies or provinces. 
In 333 BC, Lydia, Phrygia, and the rest of Asia Minor fell to Alexander of Macedon, more commonly known as Alexander the Great. Legend has it that when he reached Gordian, he was shown the ox cart tied to the post with an intricate knot. As mentioned earlier, an oracle had foretold that the man to untie it would go on to rule all of Asia. Alexander is reported to have tried, but was unable to untie the knot. He then drew his sword and sliced the knot in half with a single stroke. In his mind, it didn't matter how the knot was broken, so long as the deed was done. I suppose that that was enough, because we all know Alexander eventually did go on to rule large parts of Asia. Soon after his death, Phrygia became part of the Seleucid Empire. That's probably good. 133 BC. So you, you get a sense of it. It's a very long history. But one of the things I want you to hold on to is the way the Greek and then later the Romans will react to them. So the Gordian knot, this is part of their cultural tradition. There's a knot that cannot be untied. It's impossible. And so it was sort of their call for compromise that we have to work together in order to solve this problem. And how did the Greeks deal, specifically Alexander, with the Gordian knot? They cut it in half. They destroyed it. Um, they tell the story of King Midas, which you got a little bit of the two accounts, right? On the one hand, uh, he was a military figure, united the, the country, tried to fight off, eventually died in battle. Though the Greeks tell the story that he was just a greedy, greedy crazy man who wanted gold no matter what. And they didn't say it in the video, but classically, who does he turn into gold? His daughter, right? And so he's, he's crushed by that. So again, there's all this sort of dismissal of their culture. Now, I'm not saying they were good people or bad people. I, it just, it, it's, the, it's the way it works. Uh, they were a broken people. They had been much more in their past. They had been independent. Um, again, they had been economically powerful, but all of that was gone. And so they have been under the heels of everybody that's come along. First the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then Paul uh, sort of shares this light where the gospel has been transforming them. So please understand, the gospel of Christ is getting everywhere, everywhere. And people that we probably would never have really paid attention to are being changed and brought into this new family called the church. Uh, that's, that's really just awesome. Yep. So. All right, let's take a look at a, another map uh, to kind of, let's focus in. Pastor Kurtz kind of explained the, the ancient world of, we're going to call it Phrygia? Yeah, so there's a debate. How do you, is it tomato or is it tomato? Uh, uh, I was taught it was Phrygian because they were the origins of the word frickin. Um, that's a little funny. Yeah, but no, I think true. the English pronunciation is what you heard there, that it's... Uh, Rigia, I, Frigia, I can't say it. Frigia. Frigia. Yep. Which sounds cool, too. Name your daughter Frigia. It'd be great. We got a, a map of Western uh, Turkey. I think that's what I labeled it. Yeah. This is where Paul grew up. Actually, this is the one I threw in. But Oh, okay. Um, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Either one's good. There we go. So uh, just to kind of, let's kind of get uh, get oriented here. So this is, well, it's kind of hard to see. Right there is Ephesus, and that is where Paul is living at the time that he writes this letter. 
uh, most likely, and he is in prison in Ephesus at this time. Kurt, we decided about around 50 AD. Right, right. Uh, used to, they think that, thought that Paul wrote this letter way late, but most likely it's around 50 AD. So if you kind of go follow this road down here, uh, you get down to Colossae, which is right here. And I want you to notice the two towns that are closest to it, Laodicea and Hierapolis. One of the things that's really cool about the letter to Colossae is even though it's short, it's got, some, it's got much overlap with other books in uh, the New Testament. Um, in Ephesus, there was a guy from Colossae that came to Ephesus and uh, came to Christ under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and his name was Philemon, which that happens to be the shortest book in the New Testament right? And Philemon owned a slave by the name of Omniscius. And um, at the end of the book of Colossae, uh, Paul talks about Omniscius. And basically, and, and then uh, it's, it's almost as if Epaphras, or excuse me, Tychicus, who's taking the letter. Remember, there's no postal system, so Tychicus is who's delivering the letter. Then most likely at the exact same time, he hands this letter off to Philemon. And in the letter, he is instructed by Paul to receive his slave back who had run away. You remember as what? As a brother. Kurt, why don't you just explain how subversive that is? Oh, boy, that'll get you killed. Absolutely get you killed. Remember what I said, that the ancient world changes very, very slowly. And so there was this philosophical concept, started with the Greeks, but readily adopted by the Romans, called the great chain of being. It was the idea that the various gods had intended you to occupy a certain station in life, and that's why you were born into it. And so there was absolutely no social mobility. Uh, the Roman patriarchs were meant to rule the world, the patricians, uh, that's why they were born up there, they were the most important families, and it, it just went down. Everybody knew where they were on their station. At the bottom of it were the slaves, and two-thirds of the Roman Empire is full of slaves. So think about that. It's amazing what you can build with slaves. Go visit Rome. Beautiful coliseums. It's great. You're stealing money from the whole world and endless supply of slave labor. Holy moly. It's time to be a good architect, right? But what happens to those days? The slaves decide, you know what? I'm sick of this. And Rome had several of them. Have you ever heard the story of Spartacus? Uh, they had several before that uh, where the slaves said, you know what? kill you. And the Roman legions had to be deployed against the slave revolts. And so Rome absolutely would not entertain any idea that a slave could rise above their station. Now, to, to be accurate, there are certain conditions in which a slave can be freed. Slavery in the Roman world is different than we experienced in America. It's not racially based. Anybody could be a slave. If you find yourself in debt or uh, criminally uh, negligent, uh, or just criminal activity, or if you were taken in war. So you would see slaves of every color, every race, every uh, creed, really. Even Romans in certain circumstances could be slaves. There was a chance... Eh, 
rare one, um, that you would be freed from your slavery, but you would just become what they call the freedman, which is one step above a slave. You're never going to become a Roman senator. This is just never, ever going to happen. So Paul, I mean, he wrote a lot, right? He's, he's very verbose. Um, there's many things that he writes in this that get him, could get him killed, or at least draft. Imagine being in Russia today. That's what it's like under the Romans. They're either going to beat you, torture you, eventually kill you. But to tell a slave that he is now the brother of, and we know in many churches they have very wealthy Greeks, very powerful Romans. Uh, they have women of great standing. I mean, the, the church is not just made up of the poor. It's made up of very wealthy Jews, uh, you know, Corinth gives us a cross-section of society, and all kinds of people are there, including slaves. And so it was very, very revolutionary. Yep. Back to the map real quick, Nate, sorry. Uh, so we've got Philemon, uh, who Paul talks about. Who, Philemon is from Colossae. That's the book that we're in. Well, at the end of the book of Colossians, and you can turn over there towards the end, Paul mentions that he has also written a letter to the Laodiceans. Now, I want you all, all to turn to the letter of Laodicea in your Bible. <laughs> He's being mean. So this is a letter. You know, you, you ever wonder, will the Bible ever change? It could. If the letter to the Laodiceans is found, our Bibles will change. Yep, if it's genuine. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's genuine and it's, yeah, it's, that will be added. Because what Paul says is, hey, I wrote a letter to them too. So they're just down the road, Right. Colossi, Laodicea, that's really, really close. It looks like on the, uh, on the scale there, maybe about four miles. Really close. I live four miles outside of, outside of town of Tulia. My mom made me walk to baseball practice when I got in trouble. And so I made a trip right there. <laughs> um, so, but Laodicea is also mentioned in another book of the Bible. Very famous passage in the book of Revelation. And, and so, uh, remember in, in Laodicea, it's kind of the, of the seven churches in Revelation. This is in chapter three of Revelation. Um, the famous word is, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Hmm. In Colossae, you can't really see it on that. You can barely see it on this map. See that mountain ridge right there? Is in the winter time that those would get uh, covered in snow, and then the snow would melt and it would populate these springs uh, down in the valley, and those springs out of them would come very cold water. Right here is another town called Heriopolis, and you can see you can go see this on Google Earth, but like right now. Uh, just put in Heriopolis, and it has all of these mineral uh, salt springs, uh, these, these, these mineral springs, and that water is hot. Laodicea, where Paul also wrote a letter to, had no natural water source. So they had to pipe it in from Colossae and Heriopolis. So cold water, hot water, by the time it gets to Colossae, what is it? Lukewarm. You see, Jesus is brilliant. He, he, he speaks directly to where people are in their cultural context to help them make sense of where they are spiritually, right? And so this little letter, uh, it is deeply, 
deeply subversive. And this little letter also overlaps with the New Testament as a whole. And so we're going to have all kinds of fun um, and hopefully heart, heart transformation moments as we go through this letter together. So what happens when hot springs cool? What, what do they tend to have more content-wise than hot springs? Those minerals and delicious things that destroy our teeth, right? <laughs> so when they cool, it tastes nasty, kind of like Midland water. But anyway. And it makes you throw up. It makes you throw up, which is... Yeah. Spit you out of my mouth. It all works. So Steve's doing a good job. We've got Ephesus. We saw, saw Laodicea. We've got Philadelphia. Myra, sorry, my hands shake. Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum. Pergamum. Do these ring bells? These are the seven churches of Revelation. This area right here is the cradle of Christianity. This is where it really took root. We've got Patmos, the island where John was uh, at a Roman mine prison. And then he goes to Ephesus where he'll write his great works. So much further south down here is Jerusalem that we're all familiar with, and then Galilee. But because of the war that happens, everything tends to move up here. For the next really 1,500 years, this is, this is the, 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 the cradle of Christianity. It's not on here, but Nicaea, where we get our creed, is up here. Uh, Byzantium, Constantinople is up there. All of this is really the heart of Christianity Islam will come in and take it, um, destroy it all, and today it's just ruins. So even in our modern history, there's, there's a lot that's been lost. But someone else grew up in this area, and instead of trying to switch maps, uh, it's over here. It's a place called Tarsus. So who grows up there? Well, it grows up there, at least born there, spent some years. Paul. So Colossae, Laodicea are not terribly far uh, from where he grew up. So you, you sort of get, get a sense they're mountainous, uh, they're valleys. This is the Lycus Valley, that Colossae. But um, the road had moved. And so they're, they're going into Ephesus, they're going through Laodicea, and Colossae has been bypassed. So a, a group of people that used to be something in a town that used to be something, and it's just not anymore. And yet the church is, is blessing them. <laughs> What questions do you have? It's a lot of intro, but... Yeah, that's kind of all, all the background that we, we need to, at least to get started. Anybody have any questions or thoughts on that? All right, brother, onward. All right, let's, let's take a look at the letter. Imagine and open it up. This letter is from Paul, chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and from our brother... Timothy. So, of course, he's using the name Paul. Uh, he, a lot of times, we, we sort of mistakenly think that God changes his name, and it's not quite true. Um, this is his, his Roman name, Paulus, uh, where Shaul would have been his Hebrew name, his birth name. Uh, so it is sort of how he's known in the church. It's um, easier, I think, for him to communicate uh, in this way. One of the things that at least stands out for me, a lot of the writers in the New Testament translate what they're doing. They think in Hebrew, and then they write in Greek. It's not true of Paul. 
He definitely thinks in Greek, and he's able to write Greek on a level that, except for maybe John, none others can rival. You know, poor Peter. <laughs> Peter could not probably talk to Paul in, in Greek. Um, it would be, it would be a challenge. But his his credentials here is that he is chosen by God. And if you read Paul's work, that's a powerful uh, testimony to what he went through in life. You know, from being an accusing Pharisee that participated in the death of Stephen uh, to someone that whose life was interrupted on the road, literally encountered the risen Christ that changed him. And he is an apostle. Uh, this isn't just a generic term, I think, for church leader. It was a term that Jesus, in a sense, coins or, or redefines. Remember, Jesus generally is referred to as a rabbi, as a teacher, by people that knew him, even the Pharisees or Sadducees that hated him. And he called Talmudim disciples. And this is what rabbis did. And they prepared the next generation, not through writing, but through teaching that next generation disciples to to carry out their yoke, their message. When the time came for Jesus to graduate all of the disciples and make them rabbis, Jesus changes it. And unfortunately, the only record we have of this is in Greek. Um, I suspect I know what the Hebrew word was, but uh, the Greek word that we get that they use is apostolos, which is one that's sent. And so you get Jesus sort of crafting this idea that I don't just want you to be the teacher, I do want you to be that, but I want you to be the teacher that's sent out to people. Now, there is a Hebrew concept when a high priest or someone in the synagogue had an important message and they would send a person out. And so I think that's what Jesus was was co-opting. But we, we get it in Greek, so it's apostolos. So Paul understands that he comes, in a sense, from this tradition of Jesus preparing one generation to lead the next generation. It's teacher preparing disciple and, and that process continuing. So it is is a lot. And they acknowledge uh, in Paul's his wording here uh, that it's Christ Jesus. So instead of Jesus the Messiah, he's saying Messiah Jesus, the, that importance. And of course, he remembers brother, but it's really kind of adopted son, uh, Timothy, who was a combination. His Let me get this right. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. Um, is that right? Mother was Jewish. That's right. Yeah, mother that's was Jewish. Mother's and grandmother, in fact, was Jewish. That's the. That's the. If you're, if you're in a mixed marriage, that's the only way you can be Jewish. Is if your mom is, if your mom is Jewish. That's right. Um, so it was sort of a, a a product of of what the church was. It's still very much a Jewish movement, but it's also a Jewish movement that's affecting the church. Like we'll see in a minute, his phrase "grace." And peace. And Steve does such a good job of teaching us that that it's a beautiful history because the Greeks say charis. It's how they say hi. Um, and what did you say when they greet each other? Shalom, peace. So the answer is charis and shalom. It's grace and peace. It's kind of embodied in in Timothy. Paul will tell us. Uh, it's not necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised. So do you think he'd have Timothy circumcised? Yes. It's got to be one of the cruelest jokes in all the Bible, Kurt. 
And well, Paul, Paul, I Joe, think Timothy thought so. <laughs> no, exactly. You want to what? So, so Paul, you know, you know the story, right? In Acts 15, that Paul goes to bat for the for the Gentile Christians, and they have this council in Jerusalem, and they decide all together that no, uh, if you are a Gentile, you do not have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. It is a big, it is a monumentous day for the Gentile Christian movement. We may not be here if it wasn't for that day. Agreed. Absolutely. May not, may not be here. And as soon as you come out of the big victory, it's like Paul has his arm around Timothy and he's walking out the door. Timothy, we're going to circumcise you. It's like, are you kidding me? What is this? Um, but it's because he was Jewish. He was Jewish. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the balance I always try to take with these issues. That we're, we're two different children, right? And, and you hate that. It, we think it should be all egalitarian, but there are some things for them and there are some things for us. And a lot of times we want to be dismissive and say, well, if it doesn't matter for us, it doesn't matter. But Paul is trying to keep both sides. And we'll see the church struggle a little bit, not like Rome, not like Corinth uh, with these issues because there are, uh, there are Jews in Colossae, there are Greeks, and there are Phrygians that are sort of two sides of this culture, um, trying to f- figure it out. I, I don't want I don't want y'all to miss on what Kurt was saying a while ago about the about the about how the apostles kind of you know they're the sent out ones, and then they've got to then send out ones, and that's what's happened here is Epaphras. I think that's how you say it. Um, Epaphras is from Colossae. You can almost envision he and Philemon making this trip to Ephesus together and being exposed to the gospel. They give their life to Jesus. And then Paul sends Epaphras back to Colossae, and he is actually the one that evangelizes uh, the city, is Epaphras. Uh, does and I would assume with the work of Philemon as well. They, they're the ones that do it, and so then then he becomes the sent out one. Uh, Epaphras does, and so that's the way it's supposed to work. As a disciple disciples someone else, that he sends them out, and it keeps on going and going and going. And it's working like nothing the world had seen up until this point. I mean, people wonder where's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was there. I mean, groups of people are coming together, the likes of which the world had never seen. I mean, you just saw from the video, there's thousands of years of history uh, where these people are separate, but yet the message of the, the deliverer of the Jewish people is bringing them to a relationship with God that's bringing Romans and Greeks and Jews and slaves and women together in a way that's never happened before. And it's doing it so quickly that Rome and others really perceive it as a threat. But... We're not there yet. Um, Verse 2. It is written to God's holy people in the city of Colossae. That's great. They're holy. Now remember some of our discussion of holy. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean morally they never have some struggles. It means that they're set apart by Christ, by God, to do exactly what Steve just said, to spread the message, to spread the gospel, to be sent out. As we have teachers, uh, they send us out, we make disciples, um, they get sent out, and it goes on and on and on. And so they're holy. They are the yeast that God is using to change the world, uh, to make the bread rise. And that's... Paul is not one for fluff. 
except for maybe when he's talking about himself. But um, he, he will not give you a false compliment. And so if he says you are the holy people, he's, it's high praise. It really, really is. What else do your translations have there? Faithful? Anybody else? Got anything else? Saints, anybody? Saints. Yeah. Saints, yeah. And so it's it, it it's the same word. Uh, we're just not, we're uncomfortable. We may be. I think we're probably most comfortable with faithful, less comfortable with holy. Certainly not comfortable being called a saint. Come on, come on. To not see yourself as a saint, you're robbing the world of the of your capacity to extend grace to them. Your sainthood has nothing to do with you, but it has everything to do with your willingness to be holy and to touch the world with the grace of Christ. So I encourage people, to, you've heard me say this before, when you put your feet on the floor uh, in the morning that you say, I am a priest. Or maybe you say, I am a holy priest. I am a saint. And you go and you change the world every day. Your husband, your wife, your kids, at work, that is who you are to them. Do not short, don't, you're not shortchanging yourself. When you don't see yourself in the right light, you're shortchanging them. Because there's fruit that's growing off your tree that they can take off of your tree and sink their teeth into and experience the new creation uh, through your life. Yeah, it's really like seeing yourself as a paramedic more than just a morally superior person. Right. <laughs> you know, please don't let the saint, officer, you can't give a saint a ticket, can you? I mean, <laughs> you know, try it. Maybe if it gets you out, go with it. But it's, it's not that, again, we're perfect. We're, we're, we're not, you know, the halo and the wings and all that. It's that we're willing to be a paramedic. We're willing to help where we can. If there's someone's life that's at risk or, you know, we can bring the gospel. We can bring the Holy Spirit. So it's willing uh, to to get involved. And Paul does commend this church that they've done it. And they've done it for all sorts of people, uh, which has never been done in all the history of the Roman Empire. So, better stop. Okay. So we'll just stop with, um, may God our Father give you grace and peace, which is what uh, we started with. It's both acknowledging the Greek side and acknowledging the Jewish side. And it's also... Like you can see grace and peace as a very condensed version of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Think about it. How many of us at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want peace to be whole. Yeah. Yeah. We want, we want our wall, the wall of our life to be plumb and straight and to feel good. We want peace. That's what shalom means. How you get it? You'll probably, you know, I've been saying grace and peace for a long time, right? Uh, I get it from Paul, of course. But I have some smart aleck church members throughout my, my career that, that they don't like it very much. And so they'll say, hi, Steve, peace and grace. Just because they want to be smart Alex. But do you know that peace and grace doesn't work? It's grace and peace. Because it is, because charis, the Greek word for grace, 
is gift. And from creation on, that is how God has been interacting with humans, is seeking to pour gifts in their life that we receive. You see, we get tired of receiving because we get in a hurry and we start, Adam and Eve, taking. And so it is through the receiving of God's grace, His wisdom, His instruction, His love, that is what leads to peace. That is what this letter is all about. Any questions? We did a lot, ran through a lot, so God bless you. All right. Well, just on a personal note, we would covet your continued prayers for the people of Ukraine as even night falls again and they fight for survival. I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like there's a woman being beat next door and uh, we're not doing much. Um, taking muffins in the morning. How are you feeling? But um, we, we need God to, to do a mighty thing. So. It is, sorry, I lost my party on play. As the next days move forward, we are in communication with a, uh, a district superintendent in Minnesota. His name is Fred Vanderwerf. He actually married a girl from Greenwood named Stacy Stone. Good so, man. You can trust him. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he was actually a missionary in Ukraine for eight years. Uh, I was in contact with him yesterday asking him the question, how can our church help? And he is uh, putting us in touch uh, with people. And so uh, we may be asking you to rally um, to get help uh, to some folks. Uh, they were in the uh, western part of the state in Lviv, and maybe you've heard that Lviv is the last town that refugees are going through to get out. And so this ministry, the student ministry that Fred and Stacy started, they are actually housing refugees as they are on their way to the border. And uh, that, could, that could be a way that we could help support that, that movement to get those people to safety. And I have a dream that our church in particular can buy a MiG fighter and give it to Ukraine. We'll put the cross and flame on it. Um, little dedication for the people of United Methodist Church. God bless you, Russia. And uh, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, we Sounds can like do... you just need to sing a Toby Keith song right now or something. I do. I do. To Putin with love. Uh, <laughs> I better pray. <laughs> Father our God, we do give you thanks that a letter written to a town in not a good place would inspire us tonight, that we can look back so many thousands of years and see that your gospel really works, that the Holy Spirit is able to get past borders and histories and languages and cultures that seem so difficult and insurmountable to us. And yet the language of Christ, the language of love, has always been the tool that you've used to leverage hearts and change people. So help us tonight, O oh Lord, to, to hear that call that we too are holy. We too are the ones that are sent. Sent out to carry your message that we've heard tonight, heard here tonight, but also that we've been raised with. So we encounter friends that are having problems, going through divorces, worried about work, worried about their health. We've got something to say. Something with grace and peace that tells the story of Christ. 
Help us, O Lord, to continue what you started, to always have a disciple, always have a student, that we're sharing what you're doing with us in our lives. And in the same way, Lord, we pray that you continue, which we know you do, to work in our world. These wars, they scare us. The death of women and children, the death of brave men defending their homes breaks our heart. Father God, we know as a people, as a world, we should do better. And that evil, evil has to be combated. Help us, O Lord, as a nation that prides itself on being an example of you, that city burning on a hill, that we will have the moral authority to say, when we see evil, we try to stop it. Again, we pray that your love, your message would would change the hearts in Russia, would embolden the hearts in Ukraine, and let there be grace and peace in Ukraine and Russia. We know of no other way other than yours, so let us be about it. In your Son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.